Good afternoon, everyone. I'd like for each of us to ask himself a very important question. And the answer to this question could have a great deal of bearing on your personal happiness and your success in life. The answer to this question has a great deal to do with the unity or disunity among members of God's church and our effectiveness as instruments in doing God's work. The answer may even determine whether you or I will ultimately be in God's kingdom in the resurrection. Here's the question. Have I learned the art of forgiveness? And if not, will I learn to forgive? And will I practice the principle of forgiveness? This question is one we must not take lightly. It goes to the very heart and core of Christianity. And how we handle this matter of forgiveness can tell us a lot about how converted we really are. And so in the sermon time today, I want to discuss with you this subject of forgiveness. According to Scripture, in due time, as you know, God is coming soon to establish His kingdom on the earth. And it will be a kingdom of universal peace and tranquility, as we just heard in the sermonette. In that respect, it will be different from the past 6,000 years of recorded history. Not only in that respect, but in others as well. But certainly in that respect, it will be far different from what mankind has experienced throughout his history. For thousands of years, individuals, tribes, and nations have feuded and fought. The pages of man's history are soaked with blood. What factors will account for the difference between the 6,000 years of man's bloody self-rule and the thousand years of peace under the reign of Christ? One important factor, and of course there are others, but one of them is that men will learn to forgive. An attitude of forbearance and forgiveness is an essential key to people learning to live together harmoniously. Who is going to teach mankind how to forgive? Well, according to Scripture, those resurrected in the first resurrection will rule and reign with Jesus Christ during the thousand years following his return before the second resurrection. Notice in Revelation 20 what it says there about those people in the first resurrection, which will occur at the time of Christ's second coming. In Revelation 20 and verse 4, it says, I saw thrones... And they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus or in Jesus, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Notice they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, reign implies that they will be participating in the government established over the earth at that time. Of course, Jesus Christ will be King of kings and Lord of lords, 
But there will be others there to assist him and to work with him in ruling over mankind. Now, when we talk about ruling, some people get the wrong idea and, and think that that means lording it over other people and oppressing people and things of that sort. That's not going to be the kind of rule that Jesus Christ will be administering. It will be certainly a firm rule, but it will be just and merciful. And those assisting Christ will be responsible for administering various aspects of government on the earth, serving people, serving the people on the earth and teaching them how to live lives of fulfillment and happiness and joy. It says in verse 5, the rest of the dead did not live until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So the first resurrection are those who will be resurrected to share the glory of Jesus Christ and to reign with Him during that period. In verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is He who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ. Now, the, actually the primary role of a priest under God's system is to teach, to instruct and to teach. And so those who are resurrected will be priests. In other words, they will be teachers. Their responsibility will be to teach people how to live God's way. And they shall reign with Him for a thousand years. So that means that if you're in the first resurrection, then you will be instructing others. And if you have learned how to forgive, among other things, then you will be teaching others how to forgive. Our time to learn this lesson then is now. Our time to begin practicing forgiveness is now. It's inevitable in life that there will be differences of opinion, there will be slights, there will be misstatements, errors in judgment. If you're the one who's slighted or if you're the one who's been falsely accused, if you're the one who's been hurt, are you going to stay hurt or are you going to get well? Some people are hurt by things people say or do, but then they just want to nurse that injury. And it seems sometimes people don't really want to get over those hurts. But we need to learn to get over the things that hurt us. And forgiveness can have a lot to do with that. Forgiveness has the power to heal hurt feelings. It's a balm for injured relationships. Now, it may not be especially uh, comfortable. It may be bitter medicine at first, and it often is, especially if you've been seriously offended or hurt by something someone has done or said. But for all of us, forgiveness is at times necessary. It is vital, it is essential to our emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, as well as that of others that we may have influence over or whose lives we may affect with our own behavior. 
So we need to ask ourselves, do I nurse grievances? Am I ready to condemn those who make mistakes or errors in judgment? Do I seek to hurt others who have hurt me? Do I seek to get back to execute revenge? Get even with those who have intentionally or unintentionally hurt me? It's human nature to feel justified to strike back at someone who has done harm to you or, or whom you may perceive as having done harm to you. But is that the way you approach such matters? Or do you forbear? Do you forgive? How magnanimous, how noble, how charitable are you in your treatment of others? What is forgiveness exactly? According to one dictionary definition, forgiveness is compassionate feelings that support a willingness to forgive. Compassionate feelings that support a willingness to forgive. Now, and that is essential, the willingness to forgive. Various definitions of forgiving or forgiveness include the ideas of ceasing to be angry or resentful towards someone who has done wrong, to grant pardon, to stop blaming, to absolve from payment. Forbearance, which is akin to forgiveness, forbearance is to act with patience, to withhold a penalty or claim against someone. If we are to rule under God, if we are to assist Christ in administering His government, then we must become like God. We must become able to think and approach things as God does. And God is a forgiving God. God is a merciful God. God would be fully justified in blotting every one of us out of existence. That is all of mankind. And actually he did that. As you know, as was mentioned in the sermonette, he destroyed the whole earth at one point. All but one family. Because of the pervasive evil and violence that existed on the earth through man's misbehavior. But mankind didn't, God did not make a complete end of mankind. And actually God's plan is to save, not to destroy mankind. And David wrote in Psalm 86 and verse 5, Psalm 86 and verse 5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Notice it says that God is good and he is ready to forgive. Daniel observed in Daniel 9 and verse 9, Daniel 9 and verse 9, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Daniel was looking to God for mercy and forgiveness. Although he knew and admitted that the people of Judah, his own nation, had rebelled against God, but he knew God was a God of mercy and forgiveness. Notice how God described himself to Moses at Mount Sinai when he showed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 5. 
Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, proclaim the name of the Lord means that God was revealing to Moses some things about himself. And the name simply means the person associated with that name. And so he was going to tell Moses something about his, himself and his character. And it goes on to say, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Notice how he begins his description of himself. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. That's how God described himself. Merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and, and abounding, I should, should have said, abounding in goodness and truth. And then he goes on to say in verse 7, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Even that statement is indicative of God's forgiveness and forbearance because what, what it really implies is that God often will forbear for several generations before he executes judgment on those who are doing evil. And we see many examples of that in Scripture. He doesn't always execute judgment immediately when evil is done or when there is an evil generation. Sometimes he forbears and he, he delivers his wrath much later. Well-deserved wrath, but he is forbearing and giving people a chance to learn lessons without being punished severely. God's willingness to forgive is manifested in the fact that He sent His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to give His life in payment for our sins. That we, despite our sins, might be saved. Notice what we read in John chapter 3. One of the most often quoted scriptures in the Bible. John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. So notice that God so loved the world, that is mankind, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus did not die for us because we are righteous, but because we were sinners in need of forgiveness. Romans 5, verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Notice it says Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us because we are sinners. And even in his hour of suffering, Jesus asked forgiveness for those who were tormenting him in a most despicable manner. He suffered extreme agony and torment and insult. But notice his attitude even in the hour of his suffering. Luke 23 and verse 33 and when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And now crucifixion was deliberately designed to inflict the maximum suffering upon someone being punished before he finally died. And sometimes people would hang on a crucifix or a cross or a stake, as the case might have been, for days before they actually died, suffering there in agony. It was an extremely agonizing and painful way to die. And it was deliberately designed that way. So they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. So here he was, on this cross, suffering agony, having been beaten to near the point of death, having been had all kinds of insults hurled at him, being slapped and beaten. And his response was, Father, forgive them, for they don't really know what they're doing. They did not understand fully what they were actually doing. Now, were they guilty? Yes, they were absolutely guilty of most heinous and grievous sins in what they were doing. But yet Christ showed his willingness, even under those circumstances, to forgive them. So we might compare that with our response when someone does something to us that we could retaliate for. Each of us has done and will do things for which we need God's forgiveness. Likely, nearly every day we do something that we later regret and need to repent of and be forgiven of. But God tells us that if we expect to be forgiven, we must forgive those who have offended us. Notice in Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 6 and verse 12, Jesus said in this model prayer, notice what he said, for, we should be praying for forgiveness. He said, forgive us our debts. But notice what he added to that. He said, as we forgive our debtors. Is that how we pray when we go to God for forgiveness? Is this the attitude in which we pray for forgiveness? Forgive us our debts, our sins, as we forgive those who have sinned against us or who owe something to us. In verse 14, he went on to explain, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But 
If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This kind of implies that, it, well, more than kind of implies, it tells us very clearly that forgiveness then, forgiving others is extremely important for us as Christians. History abounds with examples of wars fought, kingdoms destroyed because of man's unwillingness to forgive. In fact, you can see that more or less every day on, on the news. Something is happening somewhere. Violence, wars, killing of people, often innocent people being killed because of the unwillingness of some to forgive others. People have left the church of God, turned from God completely because of some slight or fault of someone they were unwilling to forgive. And often these involve rather petty matters, human weaknesses, personality quirks, a minor affront, a difference of opinion over something that may not be all that significant. I remember on one occasion years ago, these are people none of you would know, but I don't believe, and I don't even remember their names actually, but this was many years ago. I knew a couple who had hired a carpenter in the church to build them some cabinets. And when the job was done, they weren't satisfied with the results. They didn't like how the job had been done. And they became extremely bitter over this matter of how this other man in the church had built their cabinets and they wound up leaving the church because of the cabinets and they could not forgive the man for the poor job that he had done on their cabinets on another occasion years many years ago Work crews were building the meeting hall for the Feast of Tabernacles at the Lake of the Ozarks. It used to exist there. And a pile of scrap material had accumulated on the building side. One of the men in the church who had spent some time volunteering on the project asked the supervisor of the project, who also happened to be a minister in the church, if he could have the scrap material. And he was told no. Not long after that, a crew of volunteers was assigned the job of burning that pile of scrap material. But the man who had asked for the materials and told no took offense and quit the church as a result of not being allowed to make use of those materials. Now, would it have harmed anyone had he been given those materials? No. It wouldn't. But is that a reason to leave the church? To forsake the faith? If that's what he did, I don't know what he did from that point on. I lost track of where he went or what he what became of him, but but he was no willing no longer willing to be a part of the church over that incident. We live in a chaotic world filled with hatred, with anger, with violence with bitterness and division. And 
In such a world, it's imperative that we practice forgiveness, forbearance, mercy, compassion, and tolerance. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about forsaking sound principles. I'm not talking about compromising the truth. I'm not talking about continuing to be associated with evildoers. What I am talking about, though, is our treatment of those who are weak, who are hurt, who are blind, who are in need of nurturing. I'm also talking about our attitude toward those who offend us, perhaps without meaning to, and also those who deliberately do evil against us. Now, if you know anything about the history of Christianity, you know that throughout its history, Christians have been severely persecuted. Even today, Christianity is said to be the most persecuted religion on the face of the earth. And I'm talking about any type of Christianity, any, anything that is called Christianity, is itself the most persecuted religion on the earth, including what some may believe is Christianity, but, but really isn't. But especially those who have been faithful Christians have been persecuted. All of the original apostles, the 12 apostles, were murdered, except one, and they tried to kill him, but God spared him, evidently, from what we, from what records exist and what the Bible itself indicates. John, the last apostle to die, was the only one who evidently died a natural death. We read about Polycarp, who was a friend of John and a student of his, and became an important leader in the church, succeeding the original apostles. He was murdered. And there were many others, thousands, tens of thousands, perhaps even millions of faithful Christians who have been murdered down through the ages. And we too will have our share of persecution, especially if we if we become well known enough, there will be hatred and persecution directed against us. So how are we going to respond? Now, it is true that we must make judgments about what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong according to God's word. And Many of us have had to separate ourselves from organizations that had grown corrupt. Organizations that were teaching gross falsehood. Organizations that would not tolerate the truth. And there are times when we must separate ourselves from those who are sinning. The Bible makes that very clear. But even in such circumstances, we must avoid having a bitter or vengeful spirit and attitude. We must avoid having a spirit of condemnation, even toward those who have done evil toward us. In James 4 and verse 11, James wrote, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, yet you are not a doer of the law, rather, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is 
able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Now, he's not talking about, you know, judging whether someone's telling you the truth or not. You should make those kinds of judgments. You know, if a minister is teaching something, then you have a right and an obligation to make a judgment as to whether what you're being taught is the truth. What you ought not to do, though, is condemn someone else in your own mind and consign somebody to the lake of fire because you have made that sort of judgment. Only God can make judgments of that kind. And if we acknowledge God's sovereignty over all of us, and if we trust God to judge righteously, then it makes it easier for us to bear with the faults and mistakes of others. If God has forgiven us, how can we be justified in refusing to forgive someone else, especially a brother in the faith, especially someone who asks for our forgiveness? Notice in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul wrote, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, and humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So we're instructed here that we have a willingness to forgive others. In verse 23, Paul wrote, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done and there is no partiality. God will repay those who do wrong, we're told. And the word translated has done wrong is the Greek word adakao, which is in the Greek text of the New Testament in the present active participle which implies one who keeps on doing wrong, who continues to do wrong. Someone who persists in wrongdoing. Now, God does not necessarily punish those who have done wrong and repent. He may just forgive them and forget about the wrong that they have done. But someone who persists in doing wrong, who keeps on doing wrong, will not go unpunished. But we need to leave that punishment in God's hands rather than trying to lash out and take wrath and vengeance on someone ourselves. And that includes people in the church or out of the church. When should you forgive someone and how often should you forgive? Well, the time to forgive, the time to be willing to forgive is all the time. We should always be of a ready mind to forgive and always have a forgiving spirit. And as 
we just read when we pray, we're to pray in a spirit of forgiveness and reconciliation, even toward our enemies, as well as anyone against whom we may have a complaint. Notice in Mark 11 and verse 25, Jesus said, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Matthew 5 and verse 44, Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now this instruction here is not the typical natural human response to being mistreated. We don't generally just naturally want to love our enemies, do we? We're not naturally inclined to bless those who curse us or to do good to those who hate us or to pray for those who spitefully use us. And yet that's what Jesus Christ commanded us to do. That means that we've got to have God's help. We've got to have the help of God's Spirit to overcome our natural human inclinations our natural desire for vengeance and revenge and getting back at someone who's harmed us. If we don't have a forgiving spirit, we're likely to begin harboring resentment, hatred, and bitterness, and even perhaps plotting vengeance in our minds. And again, much of the evil and the violence in the world is brought about by people nursing grievances. And sometimes this can go on for generations and for hundreds of years, and it can involve whole nations. One of the primary reasons, for example, that World War II was fought was over perceived injustices and resentment, especially among the Germans, for what they perceived as the mistreatment that they'd received at the end of World War I. And if you've read anything about Adolf Hitler and what drove him, you'll realize that he was driven by a profound hatred toward people that he regarded as having somehow hurt the German nation or being a threat to the German nation. And that's just one example. There could be many others that you could look at, many even today. Why do so many nations hate the Jews, for example. Why are there whole nations on the earth that have stated unequivocally that their fondest desire would be to wipe Israel off the map? Why are there so many people that hate Americans or various other, you name it? What we need to do, though, is recognize that bitterness is a spiritual poison that can destroy us and we need to overcome it and avoid it. Notice what Peter said 
to a man that he perceived was full of a bitter spirit. In Acts chapter 8, verse 23, he was speaking to Simon Magus. And in Acts 8, in verse 23, he said to him, For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. You are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Bitterness is a spiritual poison. And by the way, if once it takes root, it can be very difficult to get rid of. So we need to avoid allowing it to take root to begin with. In Hebrews 12, verse 14, Hebrews 12, verse 14, we're told here, pursue peace with all people and holiness. Notice it says, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Now notice that holiness is put here right alongside pursuing peace with all people. And what that tells us is we don't compromise the truth. We don't compromise the right values. We don't go along to get along. We don't accept wrong, lies, or evil doing just to get along with people. We don't go along with things that are evil and wrong of themselves. But what we do is we do pursue peace to the extent that we can do so without compromising what is right and good and just in God's sight. And it tells us without holiness, we will not see the Lord, but we also at the same time must pursue peace with others. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. We can become defiled by bitterness, and it can spill over into the circle of people that we associate with and influence them. We can be influenced by the bitterness of others if we're not careful. So we're to do good even to those who hate us and pray for them, but trust God to judge them. Romans 12, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Repay no one evil for evil. So we should not be looking to get even with someone who does us wrong. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now again, this does not mean compromising truth. It doesn't mean going along to get along, going along with things that are wrong. But we should nevertheless try to live peaceably with others. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Or in other words, put it to rest. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. 
for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is our duty as Christians, not to be drawn into conflicts where one evil is piled upon another, but forgive people and treat even our enemies with kindness. An example of someone who did not harbor bitterness toward those who had done him a terrible wrong is Joseph. Over in Genesis chapter 50, you remember that Joseph's brothers hated him and sold him into slavery. Actually, they were going to kill him at first, but they wound up selling him into slavery. And he was taken to Egypt as a slave. And over in Genesis 50, tells us about what happened later as Joseph was watched over by God in his suffering and eventually became second only to Pharaoh in terms of power in, in Egypt. And eventually the family of Joseph moved to Egypt in a time of famine and were spared from death. But the father, Jacob, eventually died. And in verse 15 of Genesis 50, it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin. For they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? See, Joseph understood that if there was to be recompense, if, if there was to be vengeance exacted, it was God's place to take care of that, not his, even though he was the one that, that had been mistreated. He said in verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me. See, he wasn't just whitewashing the whole thing. They had done evil. What they did was wrong and evil. But he said, even though you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is to, to this day to save many people alive. Now therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So this is an example of how 
one can suffer injustice and suffer wrong and yet be of a forgiving spirit and leave the judgment of the evildoers in God's hands. Joseph was not going to usurp God's place to execute judgment on his brothers. Rather, he treated them with mercy and kindness. And Joseph's suffering was in the context of a larger picture that God had in mind, as Joseph himself came to realize. Jesus' suffering, likewise, was allowed with a larger picture in mind. We also may be allowed to suffer with a larger picture in mind. So we must retain a forgiving spirit and let God work out his purpose without allowing resentment and bitterness to destroy us. Over in James, James 5 and verse 7, James said, We are to cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. In other words, what he's telling Christians is that if you are suffering, you're, you're not alone. There are other people who are suffering as well. And Christians are not the only people who are treated unmercifully and unjustly. But nevertheless, we're to remain steadfast in the faith. In verse 10, he went on to say, May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you have suffered a while, Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Joseph had to suffer. He actually had to suffer quite a long time before things got better. And we may have to go through similar experiences. But we have to maintain the kind of magnanimous and merciful and forgiving attitude that Joseph exhibited and that Christ and that God exemplifies. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, Ephesians 4 and verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So notice we're told to let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor and evil speaking be put away with all malice. Malice means a sense of hatred and, and desire to do harm to someone else. Many slights and offenses can simply be overlooked and forgiven. Sometimes, however, there may be major issues that require reconciliation or resolution. For example, a personal matter between you and a brother. Usually those things can be and should be settled between the individuals involved. 
But sometimes it may be necessary to seek judgment from the church. And we're given instructions in that regard over in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18 and verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Now, I've known cases where people were offended by what someone had done and they were willing to talk to other people about it, but they weren't willing to go to the person who had offended them and discuss it with that person. That's what we need to do. We need to first go to the person who, who is at fault or is perceived to be at fault and discuss the matter with that person and see if we can become reconciled. Now, the chances are that he will not respond well to you confronting him with your complaint. That is a distinct possibility. In fact, it's often almost to be expected that the person who has committed the offense will not take kindly to being confronted with what he has done. So Jesus went on to say in verse 16, if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Now what does that mean, tell it to the church? Well, it means that you don't go tell the whole congregation. It means that you go to those in leadership positions in the church who are responsible for making judgments in such matters. Under Moses, there were people who were appointed to make judgments in matters of controversy. And so when people had a controversy, they went to those people who were set in the congregation to make judgments in such matters. And that is the pattern that God has established. And that continued to be practiced all down through the history of Israel to the extent that they were faithful. It was being practiced in Jesus' day. There were ordained ministers of the law who were judges in matters of controversy. And so in the church now under the new covenant, there are ministers who are appointed to oversee congregations and they would be the ones that you would take the matter to to seek judgment. Now notice what Christ said. He said, verse 17, if he refuses to hear the church, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. In other words, he, if he refuses to repent, then he may be subject to being disfellowshipped. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth 
will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That is a very poor translation. In fact, it's a wrong translation. In the Greek, the words translated will be bound and will be loosed are in the future perfect passives. And the proper translation would be will have been bound or will have been loosed. What this is really telling us is that any judgment made must conform to God's own judgments. God will have already made the judgment. And those making judgments are to make judgments according to God's laws. That is to be the guide. And so those making judgments are not free to just make any old judgment that they, de that they decide is right based on political considerations or favoritism or anything else other than justice according to God's laws. The judgments must be made according to God's will, otherwise they're not valid and they will incur God's wrath. And the Bible is full of examples of leaders who went astray and were misleading people and they became subject to God's wrath. Not only the people, not only them, but the people they were misleading and the people that were following in their wrong decisions and lawless behavior. So what this tells us is that we, we should make an effort to be reconciled and there is a procedure in place to do this that Christ has outlined. And, and as I said, you don't necessarily need to make an issue of every little thing that happens to you. You know, if, if, if it's not a big enough problem that you're willing to go to somebody to discuss it with that person, then just forget about it. But if it's, if it's a, a real issue to you, something you can't live with, then go to the person and try to get it resolved and then take these other steps that are discussed here. We're talking here about matters between brothers in the church. Now, if it's a matter involving someone outside of the church, then that would be a different process and there are courts in the land, judges and so forth that may be called upon to make judgments in those matters. But even if the guilty person is unrepentant and refuses to admit guilt or refuses to make amends, we must still maintain a willingness to forgive that person and not condemn him in our hearts, not hold a bitter, hateful attitude toward that person. Matthew 18 and verse 21 Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And really this is a kind of a, a figurative expression for basically for infinity. Forgive him as many times as is necessary. In verse 23, Jesus went on to say, Therefore the kingdom of heaven 
is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he should be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii, a much smaller amount by comparison to what he had owed. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with with me and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers, until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So all of us have been forgiven many times over by God, but if we want to continue to be forgiven, then we must be willing to forgive others who have done wrong to us. Luke 17 and verse 3. Luke 17 verse 3, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. Yes, you can rebuke your brother. You can point out his sin. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. We may need to ask God. We probably, no doubt, will need to ask God to increase our faith if we're going to be forgiving in such a manner, which we should be. It will take faith to do that. As we've seen, though, God is very merciful and ready to forgive and he is kind even to the unthankful and the evil. But ultimately, God's forgiveness is predicated on our willingness to repent. Ultimately, God will require repentance of everyone for them to be fully forgiven. Notice in 1 John 1 and verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, and this is part of what we do when we repent. 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice it says, if we confess our sins, if we repent. Proverbs 28, verse 13. In other words, God is not a fool and He's not a sucker. He's not going to be taken advantage of. And we can't expect God to just keep on forgiving us and forgiving us and forgiving us if we refuse to repent. Even though we need, we um, ourselves need to be willing to forgive others at all times. It says in Proverbs 28 and verse 13, He who covers his sins will not prosper. That is, who, who tries to hide sin. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. We confess our sins to God. We don't go to some guy dressed up in a black shirt or black skirt and confess our sins. But we go to God and confess our sins and forsake them. That's what repentance is. And notice it says if we do that, we will have mercy. But even though we know that sinners who don't repent will be judged and punished, it is God's judgment to make. And so we need to be very careful that we do not condemn others in our hearts, but that we leave their judgment to God. Because we don't, we don't always know what necessarily is in someone's heart or what the ultimate outcome of their lives might be. But God does know what's in a person's heart and He can deal with them. He can judge them in ways that we do not have the capacity to do. And this being careful not to condemn applies even to those from whom we must separate ourselves. Those that we have separated ourselves from because of their persistence in sin. We, we don't have to continue to associate with them, but we should not condemn them either. That is, we should not consign them to the lake of fire or wish evil upon them. In 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 14, it says, If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle... Note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. In other words, if someone is sinning, if they're persistently lying or committing other sins that necessitate you separating yourself from that person, then you should do so. But it goes on to say, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. If you have trouble forgiving others, which we all do, I'm sure at times, or, well, I shouldn't say, I'm sure we all do. I suspect we all do, knowing human nature. But 
if we have that problem, we need to go to God and ask for a forgiving spirit. Remember that peace, long-suffering, kindness, and goodness are fruits of the Spirit of God. And so we can go to God and we can pray that God will increase our faith as the disciples did of Jesus. And they said, increase our faith when he was telling them to forgive and to keep on forgiving. We can go to God, we can pray, increase our faith and grant us a greater measure of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, including forgiveness. Numerous problems between people could be settled or avoided by a simple willingness to forgive. Marital problems, family problems, problems among church members, even problems dealing with people not in your family or not in the church could often be solved if we exhibit a willingness to forgive others. Now is the time to learn and practice the art of forgiveness. God's kingdom will be one of peace partly because all who are in it will have been forgiven and will have learned to forgive.